0: Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Richard Bartle. Richard is a legend among game designers. He has a PhD in artificial intelligence and is co-creator of the first virtual world ever called MUD or Multi-User Dungeon. Uh, He authored the book Designing Virtual Worlds. And his most recent book is How to Be a God, a guide for would-be deities and really practical tips for how to create your own virtual worlds and to what the ethical ramifications are and the technology and everything. It's all really fascinating. And this is a really huge honor for me. And one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast because it gave me an excuse to get to talk to Richard. I talk about Richard's uh, Bartle test in my own book, uh, Think Like a Game Designer. as one of the first processes that broke down players into different categories. And we talk about here, like how do you psychographically analyze your players? What are the things that break that down? And how does that help you design better games? He really has created so much of the foundational architecture of thought that all game designers use and so it was a real honor to get to talk to him and we dive deep not only do we talk about his history and origins and a lot of the lessons that he's taught over the years but we also project out into the future and we talk about what is the future of virtual worlds and how do things like web 3 and nfts and tokenomics impact it what is up with the metaverse and how is that going to change things and interoperability between these games it's a really fascinating breakdown of the fundamentals of game design, and the history of all of the thought that I've been talking about here and that all of us have adopted, as well as a look into what the future might hold. And to get Richard's insights on this has been amazing. We really get into it. And I, I intentionally kind of pushed back at him and, and start some interesting debate really towards the end of the podcast. So definitely stick around for that. And I'm really hoping I can get him back for a second time so we can even continue that debate. But there's plenty of meat to chew on here. So I hope you enjoy as much as I do this conversation with Richard Bartle. Hello and welcome. I am here with Richard Bartle. Richard, it is such an honor to have you here. I have been following your work for my entire life, basically, the entire time I've been interested in games. Uh, it's, it's really fantastic to get to chat with you now.
1: Um, well, it's uh, it's good to be here. Uh, um, <laughs> obviously, it's good to have lived long enough that people can spend their entire <laughs> lives <laughs> better. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, uh, it's good. I, mean, I like talking about games. Um, I like games in general, um, so I'm um, looking forward to finding out what questions you're going to spring from me out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to start. I'm going to start with the easy ones, uh, in part because I think a lot of my audience may not be as familiar with you. So, you know, I wrote I wrote a book uh, called Think Like a Game Designer, which is the same name as this podcast, and in it, I created my own kind of categorizations of player motivations. Uh, but the very first thing I have to reference is your categorizations of player motivations, as I believe, as far as I, my research can tell me, it's the first of its kind. And uh, maybe there is some others, but it was a, it was kind of a revolutionary thing that when you started to create that uh, kind of achiever, explorer, socializer, killer categories. And, and we'll, we'll dig into it. But really, you know, as far as the entire genre of, massively multiplayer online games uh, exists today you're you know pretty much you know what if the co-creator at the very least of, of pretty much everything that we now take for granted today as, as, as part of the, the online world so maybe we could just start just talk a little bit about that so people can kind of get caught up and understand where your your origin story is if you will
1: yeah okay so um... Um, I've, I've always been a gamer. My my dad's a gamer. So we used to play board games back in the day. Um, for those of you who haven't uh, Googled me yet, um, I'm, I'm 62 years old and uh, I'm, I'm therefore close to death. Uh, but the, uh, so when I was a kid, we didn't have computers. So we used to play board games and um, we used to play board games every weekend, two or three of them. Um, so I, um, that was me, my dad, and my brother. We always used to play them, so I was, so I was always a game, uh, a games player. But the more games you play, especially at a younger age, the more you come to understand what games are about, and you want to make your own games. Um, and some people want to pay, make games just because they want to play them. Um, other people want to make games um, for other people to play. And um, the former are uh, sort of players who are moving towards becoming designers or testing the waters and the latter are the ones who are game designers uh, they're, they're creating games as a way of um communicating something to the people who are playing it and the, the the thing could be quite simple like isn't this cool but it could be um more sophisticated you could be saying um um this is how things work, or this is how things should work. Or wouldn't it be great if people acted like this? Or wouldn't it be bad if um, we we set people uh, um, in these conditions? So there's all sorts of things you you can say through games, because they're a procedural model, that you can't say through other things. Um, Games are interactive. So, yeah, you can have a movie which makes a point, but it's essentially ramming it down your throat. Whereas with a game, you can... Interact with it, and you can adjust your play so that it gives you the responses you're looking for, rather than the ones that have been um, decreed as uh, the ones you're going to get. So, um, I always wanted to um, play games and wanted to make games. After a while, um, my first ones weren't very good, but then nobody else's uh, are when you start off either. I mean, mine baby maybe like plasticine pieces and things and cards taken out of other games and pieces and dice out of other games. Um, But also, in addition to games, I was interested in creating worlds, um, paracosms as they're called. Um, So uh, a lot of of kids create their own imaginary worlds and uh, so it's not unusual. Uh, A lot of famous um, authors did it, the Bronte sisters did it, Dwight Orden, the poet, did it. Um, e. Nesbitt, the um, author, did it. The, the, you can just name um, many of them who did it. Um, now, in most cases, once people grow up, they lose interest in creating worlds. Uh, my brother did, for example, but I didn't because I didn't actually like the real world. Um, I thought it was uh, not particularly well designed from my perspective. Let's put it like that. <laughs> uh, because I didn't come from a very we- um, very wealthy background. Um, I mean, we, I, I didn't have a bad childhood because we, we didn't know any better. But um, when you're watching television and you see somebody on the television who's described as being poor and they've got better things than you have and you think, well, hold on just a moment, <laughs> that can't be right. Um, so the more um, that uh, I came to understand the world, the less I thought that it was fair, and I wanted to make a better world. Um. Back in the day when I was uh, sorry, you can stop me if this is starting to sound like a rant of an, uh, a biography, but uh, anyway,
0: back. No, it's great. When, um, it's great. Uh, I'll pick, school, I definitely want to pick apart bits of it, but I love it. Go, keep going. I'll, uh, okay. I'll, 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 I'll talk more. Right.
1: It. Well. Okay. Well, I'll carry on with my uh, origin myth. Uh, so at school. Um, the um I was uh very good um academically because um it, well basically because I'm a genius. Uh, but <laughs> of but, course, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yes. But um the the school that I went to hadn't been used to teaching good children. They got all the second um, level children because all the best ones used to go to another school, then they changed the exact system. So I was in the first year where they had students who were a lot smarter than they were used to teaching. Um they didn't Um, not many people used to go to university back then, about one in seven of the population, and most of those would be middle class, um, not working class. But um, one of the advantages of being in a pokey little school out in the middle of nowhere um, was that uh, there was a chemical works about 15 um, miles away, run by BP, and in order to try and um, uh, mollify the local population uh, for pumping chemicals into the air, they gave some schools access to computers. So even though I was out, I mean, 15 miles east of nowhere, there was uh, uh, I had access to a computer over um, an acoustic coupler, 110 board. So I could. Um, learned to program when i was 16 found out i was really really good at it um passed my exams with indifferent results because it turned out that um to get marks uh, in a in a mathematics exam um you don't get marks for putting the correct answer down well you do you get one but you don't get the four marks you would have got if you'd have written the how you worked out the answer we thought that you would get more marks for um doing it in your head but no you get more marks for showing that you're um, so stupid you have to write things down so yeah i passed within different marks um but nevertheless they were good enough to get me into Essex university um where i um met uh several other um people who were similarly um interested in computers um most of them were from um, working-class backgrounds because uh, the 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 UK wanted people to um, do software engineering and were prepared to allow people who were not from um, middle-class backgrounds to do it because people with middle-class backgrounds wanted to do something else like um, philosophy or English or economics, um, sociology, if they weren't all that bright. Um, but they didn't want them to do engineers and the engineering or mathematics. Now, um, when I uh, when I joined, I went to university to do mathematics. But there was something like three hundred people in my um, cohort doing maths, and two of them were better than me. So I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to switch to computer science because there, uh, there weren't any better than me in computer science. Um, so I switched it to uh, at the end of the um, second. Yeah, but I'd always been wanting to do computing. It was was, um, a joint first year, so I could do it as well. Um, So, are the other people who were doing computer science back then? You had to have a particular world view to do it. Essentially, you had to be imaginative and creative and love technology. And there weren't many people around like that. Uh, A lot of us was from lesser off backgrounds or from better off backgrounds in defiance of our parents. And we all had this similar attitude that um, it's like chaotic good in um, Dungeons & Dragons terms, where we didn't want to be told what to do, but we wanted to do well. We wanted to do good for the world.
0: Yeah, and, so I wanna I wanna dig in a little bit there if you don't mind. Because no, you, know, you, yeah. you, you mentioned this a couple of times where the you know this you know games as an art form and the ability to communicate something to the players, an ability to sort of say something of meaning, not just necessarily, hey, mm-hmm. this is cool? And that you from a very young age wanted to create worlds because you wanted to make a better world. And then that theme is mm-hmm. has recurred here, right? Even even through now in college and in, in at university, that you're, you're you're you you want to create a better world. Was this a continuous thread where you felt this world design was that was that there for it? And 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 also I'm interested because you mentioned you know you you grew up playing board games and board games is definitely the the heart of where I live and most of my designs are as well. Um, was it was Dungeons and Dragons an early part of that as well in the world creation? Did that come later? Because That's been a common theme from a lot of the designers I've spoken to. That that was one of the inspirations that made it feel possible to create an immersive world like this.
1: Um, I did play Dungeons and Dragons, I got one of the first few sets me and my friends um clubbed together, and it, it cost something like six pounds, which was an enormous amount back then. You know, I mean, it was two weekends of wages for me, um, in my job as an in a, in a working as a bingo caller in an amusement arcade, so huh. um. It was, so we we clubbed together and bought some but um but th- although i got some things out of Dungeons & dragons um some new new uh, mechanics from it um that wasn't what um made me think you know i could make a world a, 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 that would work a, a a wholly consistent world um i'd already invented for my own personal use what would you probably now call a um, role playing game? Um, but it was just a single player one. Um, it, what I did was I built a continent of uh, an imaginary continent on bits of paper and um, stuck them all together with sticky tape, um, turned it over because you can't draw on felt tip pen with sticky tape, and um, then I uh, did the all the surrounding of it and, and made a big, long, straggly continent out of this. <laughs> Basically, what was writing paper when because people didn't used to send emails, they used to write letters, and and then I would um, start at one point on it, and um, I would move to the other point. I was playing a character called Doctor Toddy Stone, based on Doctor Livingstone, and um, I made a um, a pair of um, um, compasses out of two pins and some sticky tape, and so the the, the tips of the pins were. Um, three centimetres apart, and I'd gone with the mixed um, units of one millimetre equals one mile, and I figured the guy could probably go about 30 miles a day. In practice, it's, people can probably go about 20 miles a day, but I didn't know that back then. So I used to stick a pin in, and then I'd um, figure where the guy was trying to go, and I'd stick the pin where he was going to go, and then I'd draw a line, and then I would write the diary entry, what happened to him. Yeah. And so I'd write, paragraph or two and and in so doing um i would create my own story through playing through this imaginary world that i created so that showed me that i could that, that you could use a game to tell a story um, when you read the story afterwards it was dead on the page but read but playing it was the interesting part that was where the fun was um, also there was um um Lord of the Rings, the book. I read that three times in my teens, not because it was a good book, (coughs) it isn't, but because uh, it showed that you could create a fully realised, believable world. It was doable. Got it. And um, that's why I was interested in in that. I'd also um, subscribed to a, my, my father subscribed to a magazine called Games and Puzzles, and one of the issues of that, was it number 18? Um, had a, a an article in there about um a an a what today would be online but back then was postal um fantasy campaign so it was a a game with 100 more players each one of them controlling um a character in the world of conan um uh, robert e howard's yeah so um so I thought, that sounds really good. And, I'm, and I started to design my own campaign world for that. So there was a number of things that I did. Um, Dungeons & Dragons came along um, and, yeah, played a lot of that um, at the time. But that wasn't my inspiration. I'd already been inspired um, by other things. And I'd already been driven by the fact that I didn't like the real world as it was.
0: So, yeah, I think that's, that's fantastic. I, I really love, so, you know, there's a couple of things I just, you know, a, a core principles. you mentioned this earlier, but I always just like to underline it, right? You're, you know, you start by just making these kinds of prototypes and just doing it and they're, they are terrible at first. And it is through that sort of iteration and repetition that they become better over time. And that's kind of how you start to, to sort of learn this craft. And I think it's also really interesting, you know, again most of the designers the people who come up in my era we have tons of examples of professional game designers and people who have written about design and you know that there's this sort of craft and world and professional world that exists but that was pretty much non-existent when you were growing up but even seeing these things where a a you know play by mail multiplayer fantasy campaign as a precursor to now the technology exists where we can do this in an online forum uh, that makes a lot of sense as kind of a connect the dots element, right? Take a what you could build from a, your own world and what you've seen from Lord of the Rings and a multiplayer game, and now the kind of dots sort of connect uh, to what you were then able to do uh, with with Roy and, and building the first mud. But maybe I'm, I'm getting ahead a little bit, so I'll let um, you continue the story.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, um, no, yeah, what you've said's pretty well. Yeah, that's how it was. When I was a kid, there wasn't really a genre of fantasy. Um. The, um sword and sorcery was something that was applied to movies and um some books so i mean we knew about conan we knew about um Farford and the gray mouser we knew about uh, ursula Kayla Gwynne and of course we knew about tolkien um but we didn't really know much about anything else back then um and the uh, the the genre that Later became known as fantasy or high fantasy. That wasn't really a thing. Um, uh, I was more. Uh, it, it was more to do with um, uh, fairy stories based in English folklore. So someone like Enid Blyton who used to write all these stories for for kids. Um, her imaginary worlds were quite um, important to sh- To show um, you can have what you like in these. Another one that was really good was, um, believe it or not, Rupert the Bear, because he w- he lived in this this world that was completely consistent and, and fully realized. And you and they there were these pictures of um, you know uh, there'd be some rope bridge walkways going up high into the trees, and you could see them all about, and, and they were really evocative. So. Um, when I was designing my, um, the, the campaign that I was going to uh, create, and I thought, when I get to university, I'm, I am so going to implement all this on a computer because um, I didn't have a computer, obviously. And then I got to university and um, I was chatting to um, the uh, chairman of the Computer Society, who was Nigel Roberts, um, who is now on the board of ICANN. Uh, so, yeah, he's done well for himself, um, yeah. Nigel. And um, I was explaining what I wanted to do. And um, then he mentioned this game called Advent or Adventure, um, Colossal Cave. And um, I said, "Ah, oh, yeah, I knew about that because I'd seen a transcript of it in a postal games magazine called Bellicus that I used to subscribe to. And then he said, um, well, what I was uh, proposing to write was a bit like what his friend Roy, who was the secretary of the computing society, what he was doing, um, which was um, which was similar to Advent, but it was um, a, a shared world. And I thought, uh, so I, I met up with Roy and we, we discussed things and I thought, well, there's no point in me doing what I was going to do because um, Roy's doing the same thing. Um, um, Roy was doing it. Um, essentially uh, bottom-up, and now is coming uh, more top-down. I thought, well, um, this is what I want to do. This is um, If, if Roy is successful here, then that will give me what I want, to be able to create worlds that uh, people can inhabit rather than the real world, because the real world is not a good place. Sure. Um, so um, Roy was letting um, some of us create content, it wasn't called content back then, but he was letting us create things for his world. And uh, so Nigel put some things in, and I put some things in. I was very good at putting things in because um, I'd already designed plenty of games and knew instinctively what, what to put in. So um, it, Roy, Roy did most of the work until... This would be um, 78, 1978 when um, we, we started. Roy did most of it until... Um, 1980. Um, he rewrote it because he'd been writing it in assembly language and it was getting hard to manage. Um, he rewrote it in language BCPL, um, which uh, C, the language C is based on the language called B, which was based on BCPL. So, yeah, but beautiful language. Love BCPL. Um, anyway, um, It was getting around Easter, and Roy thought, you know, maybe I should write my um, final year project now, Uh, otherwise I'll fail my degree. So um, he passed over um, ownership of um, MUD to me, MUD being the game that he'd written, multi-user dungeon. So um, I took it over, um, and um, then I I ran ran it ever since then. So it's, um, it's not like Roy's... Uh, baby, uh, um, he's the one who created it. Um, if he hadn't have done, I would have created something myself anyway. But it wouldn't have been quite like well, mud.
0: Well, there's a couple of interesting things there because I know from this narrative, it's not just that you know, sort of Roy had this idea and built it. You know, as you put it, yeah. from bottom up. You wanted to build it from top down, and there were several other designers around that time that were all sort of doing the same kind of thing. And within a few years, it was you know, a lot of people were trying to do the same thing, and and something that that's occurred to me around it, as I've seen, you know, even just in in kind of my time in the industry, you know, as technology advances, there's these kind of threshold moments where this new possibility of doing the same fundamental things that we as a species have tried to do forever, right? We want to tell better stories. We want to be able to connect with other people. We want to be able to, this 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 urge to kind of build worlds and share this with other people and interact and kind of test ourselves within them. Like all of those things are pretty universal in that, you know, when for you, they sort of, you know, online text-based items were available and suddenly coming to life. And then eventually the same was true when, uh, you know, video and, I'm and, sorry, when, uh, you know, animated and, and visual things were coming to life. And as they, you know, maybe VR is, on the cusp, maybe not. We could talk about that, but I think there's this really interesting, like, threshold that occurs over time, and I wonder if you have thoughts on, you know, a, you know, how much that technology and the and the transition of where you were played a role in, in your creation at the time, and then even more interestingly for me now is like, what do you see as those technological thresholds that we're about to encompass, or what's kind of what do you see this this headed in the near future?
1: Um. Yes. Well, what you're saying is right. Yes, there um, you, you do get to the stage um, where there things become within reach, um, but um, they're they're not within easy reach. So the people who start working on things initially um, are the ones that really really want to get what it is that's just out of reach. So yes, um, lots of people could have created virtual worlds back when Roy and I did Mud, and other people did. Some of them. Um, I mean, the concept is, isn't as if it's uh, um, unique, and it's only ever going to be developed once, uh, because it was. Uh, there's at least five other. Um, Examples I know of where virtual worlds were invented independently, with none of the people writing them knew anything about the others. Um, so, but they some of them were. Um, I like Dungeons and Dragons. Let's make a computer version of it. But others were. I want to build a society that people can can visit online because not everybody can. Then there's others where. I can give people power here that they don't have in the real world, so they can become themselves. Now, all of those have happened. I mean, um, the latter one was like was that's pretty well Island of Kesmai. The middle one was um, Habitat. First one's probably more like Avatar. And to people who want to make these games, if they're if they've got the passion about it and the technology is just there. Then they will, they will do it. I mean, Mark Jacobs, who uh, the, the mythic guy, um, Dark Age of Camelot. He was a lawyer and he gave that up, taught himself programming just so he could make those games. Now that shows a kind of level of commitment that somebody. It's something has clicked. They definitely want to do this. And so it was with uh, with Ryan and I. We weren't just doing it for fun. We actually wanted to make that game world. Now, when things start off and um, you're working as a pioneer, the pioneers never make all the money. It's always the people who come afterwards. Um, you're setting the, um, the, the the ground rules. You're making all the mistakes. You're finding out what to do. But because you know, um, you've got a, a strong vision. That's directing you in ways that people who are just doing it because, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could get make some money, aren't doing it. Um, now, um, after a while, people start developing tools that you can use. And the tools um, make it easier to create the world. Uh, and then they start using the tools to make components. And you can use the components to make your world. And after a while, you can just get the world Yourself, um, a stock game, and tinker with it a little bit, you know, customize it in some ways. And each one of these steps um, democratizes um, the process of making the world, the game, or the, the product, but it also um, reduces the uh, capacity for innovation so um for example today um, i've got a couple of students who are making games um for their final year projects and they're um they're just regular games for for the phone and they they're both using the uh, unreal unreal engine 4 and that's good because it means they can create a lot of content the trouble is if unreal engine doesn't want you to do it you don't do it. It it gives you it let it gives you all these tools and all these components, but if you want to do something that it doesn't give you, it's pretty hard. Um Unity's even worse in that regard. In, it, it's great if you want to do what Unity wants you to do, but it's not so great if you don't want to do what Unity wants you to do. You just want to do most of what Unity will let you do. Um so you you, you you again, you get these where people think, uh, well, let me do it. I'll just do what it lets. But other people will be thinking, no, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to force you to do what I want to do because what I want to do is important. It's important to me for reasons I can't explain. I just know that I want to do that. And so you do still get these. It's just out of reach. But if you're passionate enough and you grab it, then you take things in a different direction uh, yeah I think this I think this
0: is interesting interesting path here because I, I you know, again you speak to this sort of this passion this creative impulse this desire to sort of communicate something and, and push the boundaries you know but when I when I teach game design you know to and, and aspiring designers you know I think I think there's actually value in forcing people to play in a box at first especially, right? That there's value to having to battle with the with the creative restrictions. That's why even for you, where, you know, practicing and learning on making tabletop games and telling stories on your own gave you those instincts that allowed you to be more easily telling stories within the mud or, you know, this forcing these people to, to be able to kind of bootstrap games and and, and entire worlds with something like Unreal or Unity uh, can kind of really get you the, the chops that you need to do something like, you know, Build outside the box, you know, new world experiences. So I think there's really, I mean, I I always just think you know, creativity is is generally speaking enhanced by restrictions uh, rather than 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 shut down by it.
1: Well, it's it's like games themselves, aren't they? I mean, games um, themselves have uh, they've got sets of rules, and if the rules are too weak and it's uh, and it's an easy game to play people aren't interested if the rules are too strong and um it's too hard to play people get frustrated but there's a, there's a sweet spot in the middle where the rules restrict you just enough to open up freedoms to do things you couldn't have done without the rules but without um tightening it so much that you've got little room to play a play in the sense of um, you know the play of uh uh of a tool in a in a hole you know it's that sort of you know room to move around um and so that so that um the rules are giving you a space within which to operate and when it comes to game designing yeah it's a similar thing if you if you um restrict what people are going to um be creating um to fit in a in a particular container then if you restrict it in um enough, then that can open up new opportunities that people couldn't have done if they'd have just been a completely free But if you give them too much and it's restricting them too much, then you're going to frustrate people and they're going to think, why am I making games when I'm being forced to do this this task that I don't want to do that um is of no interest to in me, that I can't say anything with, or it's um or or, or even that I don't like. Uh and it can be frustrating to uh, for people, so you've got to find that um, that sweet spot. Um, yeah, but in general, though, the, the there's two kinds of people who design games. Um, there's game designers, um, and then there's designers of games. And um, the designers of games have got the craft. They're very good at making um, a game to fit a specification, um, but they're not. So much interested in using that to communicate something to the players they're more interested in um the problem solving involved in creating a design that fits the specifications now a game designer is someone who's um an artist in the sense of they want to create games because that's the medium of their medium of expression and often game designers are good at other things as well i mean they might write stories they might compose music they might sing they might act uh, they might do comedy um but the the medium of games be, uh, it, it's got something that nothing else has and that's gameplay and if you what you want to say comes through gameplay then you want to be a game designer now if you haven't got the craft obviously you're not going to be very successful in that regard because you can't make the games. You know what you want to say, but you don't have the vocabulary. Um, but if you're made to work in an environment where you are um, constantly implementing rules, that, um, designs that have been handed down to you from people who don't know about game design, so company high-ups, then it, yes, you, em- you end up being more of a designer of games, even though you're a game designer, so you're frustrated within. Um, and that's why so many indie games um, are more creative than the AAA games, because the game designers have got a freedom there. Um, obviously, um, they've got a freedom to mess up and do a terrible job of things. Um, if the only, um, the only cost is their own um, sweat equity, then um, that's not quite as bad as if they just lost somebody 30 million.
0: Yeah, th- this is a really interesting uh, distinction, and and well, there's a whole separate conversation around the scale and and cost of games and that 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 business side. But the you know designers of games versus game designers, I, my guess would be that most people have some of each. Those people who are in this role as some of each within them. Uh, uh, and I found that at least in, when I'm introspective about it, my own designs there's. Kind of a similar message that I tend to try to communicate. In many ways, it's like I'm trying to kind of perfect the same game over and over again in a lot of different ways, and different genres and different categories. Would you find that that's true for you? And, and is it this core message you talked about from your youth of you, you know you kind of want to show that there can be a better world and craft that world for
1: people? Um. Well, um, my um, driving motivation was uh, is freedom freedom to be yourself to be and become yourself uh, that's what my games tend to be about not always i can make a game just because i think it's um fun or to try a new mechanic i mean everybody makes toy games um or game designers do anyway um i could i might make it because i wanted to teach my kids the geography of europe or i might make it because oh well that's a good idea oh well and, and what can uh, I, I might just want to explore something but the um but typically, when I'm saying uh, saying something through my game designs, it's gonna be something about um, the freedom to be yourself. And if you don't know who yourself who you are, then the freedom to find out who you are and then be yourself. So that that's my um, overall artistic um, it, uh, drive. That's that's my Im- impulsive that, that's pushing me. Okay. Great. I mean,
0: now other people. I, yeah. 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 No, I, sorry. I, I wanted to, I, I don't want to interrupt, but actually I think it's a great jumping off point uh, to talking about who people are uh, and that uh, play, you know, player profiles and psychology deeper dive. So I, I, you know, this is uh, something that I've been fascinated by and I think that has a, has a, has a very rich uh, discussion through it, which is that, you know, why who people really are. Right. And you broke it down famously into the four categories uh, and And again, I don't know and, and, and please let me know if there's if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, you're the first person to do this in, in grouping and player motivations. You know people have been trying to categorize human motivations for a long time and I feel like it's a similar project. but, but maybe you can talk a little bit about how you came up with those categories and, and, and if that's the kind of way that you view when you say people are finding out who they are, is that, is that what you mean? like that you are one or some combination of these these four traits, or is there something deeper there? Uh,
1: well, there is something deeper, but um, but I didn't know that at the time. So um, the what happened was um, these are players of Mud 2, and about 1990, 1991, something like that, um, one of the senior players, um, Henry Mueller, um, played a skiff, um, asked the question, what do people want out of a Mud? And the reason was because because, um, some of the senior players were arguing over um, whether it was a good idea to um, try to make the game fun for the regular players, the the mortals, uh, Mm -hmm. rather than the immortals. And um, so you're saying, well, what do do people find fun? What is it that they do that they enjoy in these games uh, with a view to... Well, that's how we should try and treat them, as as um, the, uh, the admins. So we had this long discussion. Um, all of the senior players, um, well, we don't know all of them, but most of them. Um, and w- w- after it run its course, after five months or something, I summarised it and I went through, um, um, categorised, well, not categorised, lumping together different ideas. That people had said and I noticed that um some of the ideas were that this, this is a proper game that you're trying to win and some of them were that they liked exploring and um, seeing the, the extent of the depth of the game world and I, some players were there just for the other players um the game gave them a context to interact and then there are other players who um played because they liked being dicks um and so I um summarized that and then I thought ah how do I know I've got all the categories here? And and I, and I noticed that you could um, you, you could fit them on a graph. You could because some, two of them were clearly interested more in the game world, and that was the explorers and the achievers, as I later as I later called them. And the other two, socializers and killers, were only interested in the people in the game world. They weren't interested in the the world as much as the people. But then there were some of them. Who liked um, acting on other people, and some of them who liked uh, uh, or or, or acting on the world—they like trying to bend, they wanted to bend things to their will. So the the achievers are trying to get the game world to do things for them, and the um, killers were trying to do things to the other players. Whereas the um, socializers and um, Explorers are more responsive, and I, and I had had trouble um, labelling that um, axis. I, I originally went with active and passive, um, mm. but I, it didn't really didn't really fit. Um, anyway, uh, a few years later, the uh, I published this uh, in a, a magazine um comms plus or something it was called um in the uk and yeah people saw it and said yeah that seems fair enough yeah um but it didn't really cause a splash um mm. a bit later i sent it off to uh, gdc and didn't get a reply um huh. but then there was this journal of mud research came out i thought well i want to support that so i shall write up my um my ideas as this um as these player types and. The editor said, Why don't you um, call your uh, vertical um, dimension acting and interacting? And I thought, Yeah, that's better than active and passive. So that's why it says that. But the thing was, I didn't publish the article to say these are the four categories of fun that people, uh, these are, I wasn't trying to categorize. Players so much as what the players find fun, and because that's intrinsic to somebody, it's very hard to to measure. You can't watch somebody and find and see if what, well, if what they're doing they're finding fun, and even if you can, um, because they're excited or in some way, you don't know what it is that they're doing that's oh, ab- about the world that's fun. You just know that something they're doing is fun. Um, but so it was about fun um, but I wasn't trying to say these are the four categories of things that people find fun what I was trying to say is there is more than one category because back mm-hmm. then most game designers created games that they personally found fun which is great because that means at least one person is going to find it fun but as a game designer you you shouldn't be trying to make the game that you want to play, you should be trying to make games that people want to play, because that way you're speaking to them, not speaking to yourself. Now, if you're using game design as some form of um uh, trying to understand yourself, then that's great. Yeah, you can go ahead and do that. And a lot of art games, actually, no, not a lot of art games. I like that. They're a bit more self-conscious. Um, but you can do that. I'm not saying that's not something that people should be doing. But if you've developed as a game designer, then you, your aim should be to create games that people in general want to play, not just you. Because if games are only ever written by people who wanted to play, and then five-year-olds would be making games for five-year-olds, but they aren't, um, huh. uh, or oh, it's not very good ones. Um, the um, so the, that was the aim, and I thought, well, I'll. I'll Put, stick my head above the parapet, I'll say, look, um, everybody should be creating game. Uh, so when you're creating games, you should be for not just the type of uh, fun you want, but if it's a virtual world, you need at least more than one because the, the, the life of the world comes from the interaction between the different um, types of right. fun that people are having. Right, yeah. Um, I wasn't I think expected. that's I
0: think that's, value, that's very valuable as a, as a tool, regardless, like, yeah, whether it's, you know, these are, I, I really appreciate the, the breakdown here and that's, you know, you weren't expecting this to be the the end-all, be-all of, of the of no, categories. No, I, thought,
1: I thought six months later somebody would come out with a better one and um, then mine would be dumped. But I didn't care because my end result, the end result of a better one would be we'd get better games and better yeah. um, virtual worlds, which is, which is what i wanted but it seems that um i struck lucky and that my um four types um are actually um uh, valid Uh,
0: yeah yeah there's there's, the way i look at it i think a lot of the times that people categorize personal like human psychology which is really what we're talking about here right what are the things that motivate people um I think that there's there is a very long list, and I think that there's many different ways you can group those things, right? We, you know, I, I know Raph Koster, who's also been on the podcast, really talks about like learning and growth as one of the kind of primary things that why we play games in the first place. Um, you know, I think that the immersiveness in, in story and telling stories is a big part of it. There's all these different areas and lenses through which you can look at a game. I think the main value that I found is regardless of whether the categories are exactly right. You know, and and encompass everything. Forcing yourself to get out of your own head and think about things through different lenses, through different player categories, through different motivations is just a powerful tool to make your games better. And I think that's what I heard you saying. And I think that's like just a really powerful point to underline.
1: It is, um, but I also said that there's more to it than this um, mm-hmm. because the the player types that I do developed were specifically for muds so for virtual worlds mmos as we call them now um so um and when people um started to criticize it which obviously they did they were pointing out that there's some um look there's there's more than one type of killer because some type some people want to act on other people to be jerks but other people want to act on them to get them to do things so like guild leaders they, they're acting on other people, but you wouldn't call them killers because they're not really doing it malevolently. Um, likewise, some of the, um, uh, the people who are exploring are doing it in order to understand the game world so that then they can go on and to become achievers, whereas other ones are exploring just to reveal the meaning that the game designers put in it, this kind of end game players um some people are socialized in order to try and um form a network in order to learn more about the game and more about the important things within the uh, the important people they can learn about the world but they learn about the people they work learn about how things work they can form groups and they're kind of networking but other people have just they've been there th- playing for years and they've got these friends that um they hang out with you know, like um Army buddies who've been—if you've been in the trenches with somebody and they've saved your life—then you're going to be friends with them for the rest of your life. Um, Anybody who's survived under fire with friends, there's people today who were um, around in the Korean War and they're still buddies with the people in the Korean they were in the Korean War with. But most of my students at university, when they leave, don't keep in touch with their friends there. (laughs) because there were ships that passed in the night. So there's these different categories. And I was looking at um, how to address these, and I did it by adding an extra dimension. So instead of four types, um, I added an extra dimension, which um, was um, whether something's done uh, implicitly or explicitly, meaning um, I do have to think about it so it's explicit, or is it something you just do automatic, which is implicit? And that gave me eight types. Now, no one's going to use eight types because eight's too big a number, but um, it can be used to explain why people are playing. Because when people, um, the, the people don't stay at the same player type all the time, they move, and what's more, they follow particular paths. Even before we had player types, we used to notice that the first things players did when they started in the game was generally to try and kill each other. And because Mud had permadeath, they succeeded. But they also succeeded in learning that when you yourself get killed, you've lost everything. So it's not actually quite as much fun as you thought it was. Um, Then they'd start exploring um, to avoid the other killers and to find out where they could get points to go up level so they'd be better off at defeating the people who were um, anybody who was after them, and once they'd um, explored and got to learn the the, the the lay of the land and the um, the gear that they they could use and how to and the, the commands how to do things, then they would sit down, knuckle down, and try to get to the the end game, which in mud meant you just got the um, you got to the end, and then you were uh, raised to the level of administrator. So, um, so they would keep on doing that, but after a while, um, either they'd um, um, make it to the end and become an administrator and sit around chatting to other admins all the time, or they would uh, wouldn't really care about it and they just keep on playing, creating new characters, and chatting to their friends. So people essentially always follow the same path, which was killer to um, explorer to achiever to socializer. That's the main yeah. sequence. But they also followed other ones. Some people never did any socializing. They just um, started off by probing the world. What uh, What can I do? Can I open the door? Can I jump off a cliff? Can I swallow this whiskey? What can I do? And then after that, they started exploring. And then they would go back to achieving again. And then they'd come back to being like a guru explorer. Other people were socializers. Started off, what are the social boundaries of this world? Can I kill people? Can I swear at them? Can I, what? How, how beastly can I be? What are the boundaries? Once they'd learned the boundaries, then they'd start networking with their friends. Uh, well, they'd be making friends, making uh, acquaintances. They then um, rise to some position in like a guild. Um, we call them houses in mud, and they were quite a late addition. But they'd, they'd go to that sort of position as a guild leader. And then once they'd, uh, they'd done that, had their fill of that, and learned all there was about um Managing other people, then they'd hang around with just their uh, their best mates and do whatever they fancied. Yeah, yeah. So, so I – oh,
0: sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm I'm trying to um trying to be qu- as quick as I can. But essentially, if you follow this path, that path is part of a um. It, it, it's essentially it's the hero's journey of um from um mythic story is um that that path from um um the initial opportunist um killer griefer thing through explorer and, um like networker as as and scientist through to achiever and guild leader politician through to guru and friend thing that's the middle section of the the hero's journey which is this mythical thing it, uh, it's been quite badly bastardized by the movie industry uh so when you Google it, you're not going to get what the original um, system was. Yeah. But essentially it's a yeah, I
0: recommend everybody, Yeah, I mean, for Joseph Campbell's work, I'm very familiar with, yeah. for those that are not, highly recommend both Hero with a Thousand Faces and The Power of Myth, which de- dive deep into this uh, this yeah. principle.
1: So, essentially, what it's, um, what the hero's journey is, it's the path to self-identity, first discovery, and that's what's happening here in virtual worlds. I mean, I can go into details, but um, I, I don't want to bore your uh, listeners any more than I have already.
0: No, but, no, no. Well, I mean, I find this, I find this sort of stuff fascinating, right? These, you know, we talked about you, you know, being able to express the designer expressing their identity and message through a game, and the players, you know, really expressing their own identity and going through these paths. I think that sort of stuff is is, is really quite fascinating. And and I a, I'm happy to dive deeper into this, and then maybe we can start to weave in. Parts of you know some of the narrative and, and ideas from your your newest book, How to Be a God, and mm-hmm. this role that we as designers have, because how you create the world, how you set the systems up, has this huge impact on the path that people explore and how that process goes through. So, mm-hmm. so I'd love to you know we could bounce around these different ideas because I think that you know when you start to see it in this way that the, the when people are playing these games and interacting, it is really them. Exploring different parts of their own identity and maybe growing and going through this kind of mythic journey for themselves, then it, it really does matter the container that you put them in and the ways that it lends people towards and the kinds of messages that they pick up from it. Uh, and yeah. so, so, so yeah, let's 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 continue and kind of uh, kind of loop that in because I think there's going to be key lessons for for designers out there as they you know understand this craft as the, the kind of meaningful piece of art that it is.
1: Yeah. Well, the the, the hero's journey thing, I won't, I won't go into any more, but the, the, the fact that it was to do with that it's uh, a path to self discovery, um, that was a surprise to me because I'd always created mud to be a path to self discovery so that you could throw off whatever bad hand um, re- reality had given you and you could play the, the game and be the person you always were, that society wouldn't let you be. So um, the fact that it I could now prove it was quite um, um quite a revelation um, doesn't seem to impress anybody um, anybody else much, but it did me because that was my uh, artistic motivation uh, behind it. And it wasn't so much that I was trying to create a world that was um, uh, to show how we could make a better world. I just wanted to cut out the middleman and say, look, I had it with you reality. I can do a better job, and had a go at it. Of course, being a, an angry young man, um, uh, I had a go at it and um, rapidly reached the conclusion that I needed a more powerful computer. And now I've <laughs> comp- I need more money. But <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so so that that ended um, that validated what i was trying to do um at least in my my view so i was quite happy with that um now player types get used av- everywhere now and uh, they get used for non-mmos i can't explain why they would work for a non-mmo but i can explain why they work for mmos um, and so that's i i only ever um, apply that to Virtual worlds. Myself, I never apply player types to anything else. If people want to use it for gamification, well, great. You know, knock yourself out. It's the only tool in the box. You may as well use it, but there's probably better tools.
0: Why? Why? I don't understand why that would be a thing. I mean, you know, look. When you're saying, I know you have a kind of a specific definition when it comes to these these virtual worlds, but I feel like, you know, anytime you're in the magic circle of a game there's going to be different things that motivate you. Like, why oh, yeah. am I here and doing this? So I don't see why that categories would be any less meaningful, whether it be a tabletop game or an MMO or, a, you know, whatever. Any any game where you're socializing with others and have objectives and a space to explore, this stuff is going to be meaningful.
1: Um, well, yes. The first thing is that you said with others, so that immediately cuts out all single-player games anyway. Um, the game... Well, it's got to have sufficient context that you can play it regularly. You know, two to four hours every night for most nights of the week. Other people watch telly; you play the games. Because if you don't do that, then you're not going to um, get the benefit of pretending, of finding out who you are by pretending to be somebody else. Um, So, uh, and particularly in short-term experiences. for, for a short-term experience yeah you do ju- you can have a game that's only for socializers only for achievers but um for a longer uh, game then you that's when you need the balance that's where you need the socializers to be doing things that uh, if they weren't doing them then the achievers wouldn't be having much fun because the achievers if you're an achiever that means you want to be um uh, better than other players and if there's no one to be better than then the people at the bottom, Um, Eventually, fall off. They say, "I'm not playing this." Uh, As I improve, everybody else improves, and I still keep getting. I'm still bottom of the pile. So why keep playing? But if you've got socializers, then the socializers are are like a a hem. So there's always someone to be better than. So that you do need different player types for longer experiences. And the um, there there may well be better views of. what people want from regular games, because um, I'm, I'm looking at fun, what people find fun, um, and what they find fun is precisely that which is moving them towards their journey of self-discovery at that moment. Um, this is in line with what Raf says I mean, to do with games and learning, because what you're trying to learn is who you are. Um, it, uh, the other um, kinds of player types well, they, that I, come out tend to map. On right,
0: just I just want to run that. Place. I want to run that by what what they find fun is what moves them along their journey of personal discovery. Yeah, you feel like for, that's that's the that's the overarching thing where all fun comes from, or just
1: uh, in a, virtual a worlds. Yeah, not all fun. Uh. Obviously, uh, pushing a toddler over is fun, but it, it's not kind of fun <laughs> in, the, in the same way that. Uh,
0: <laughs> well, you're learning <laughs> about who you are for sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gorging yourself on chocolates fun, but oh yes, uh, afterwards you might pay for it, but. Yeah, there's a, so, but if you're playing a virtual world, that's the nature of the fun. If you're playing the game for fun, that's why you're doing it. If you're playing it for other reasons, like gold farming or journalism or teaching, then it's not—it's um, not relevant. That's does, that doesn't count. But other motivations tend to map onto um, the player types. There's, there's usually a mapping between them. Um, I mean the, um, the 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 ones that you see using use quite a lot you know conflict boundaries there for example you can map those on to player types although they're they're looking at motivations and I'm not looking at motivations I'm looking at fun so that there is a discrepancy between what we're looking at but in general um there there is usually some way you can put them on there and I'm sure that um psychologists have got some understanding of um the real world that maps onto it too um if somebody there was to look you know i can't believe that those four types haven't been around for ages i mean you can you can map them onto telly tubbies you can map them onto the um humours of uh of medieval times um you can map them onto the players in Knights of the dinner tables i mean there's lots of things that you can map them onto um so yeah it's
0: Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, it's even you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's a, there's overlaps here. It's, there's a lot of different ways about how we so psych. You know what what drives people. Um, so what I then I, I kind of just yeah I want to shift the discussion then towards you know how we do a better job of crafting these spaces. Right. I think that's like you talk about it not just as a as a the how to be a god uh, doesn't even just talk about the, the the mechanics of it but also talks about the the morality of it, uh, which I think is, is also fascinating, right? This idea that it's a responsibility that we take on when we craft these virtual worlds. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. A just sort of what it is, what, you know, like, so just to sort of give something concrete, right? The, the killers in the worlds are the, are the assholes that very often that are ruining things for a lot of people, right? The difference between a, a game, Community and game world where it is toxic and hostile, which we've seen a lot of communities become, versus one that's supportive and you know helps people and you know creates a, a positive environment. Community radically different and very hard to achieve. The latter, uh, maybe you know, it, 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 I'd love kind of concrete lessons from you on what what we can do to foster those kinds of communities or those the kinds of traits we want, or how do you, you know, create those healthy channels for exploring the dark side, and, and what does that look like?
1: Well, the um, the thing that killers, um, griefers, they're they're like pepper on food. So, if you're eating food and it's a bit bland, you might put a bit of pepper on it, and then it spices it up. What you don't want is the full pepper pot. Sure. Now. Um, so virtual worlds that have that have got cloying niceness to them are going to be just as bad as ones that are are fully toxic because um it it, if you're trying to be cloy trying everything to be nice and positive and everything then anybody who remotely steps out of the way you have to um, slap them down and suddenly you're the griefer because you're slapping Mm. them down so there has to be room for individual eccentricities. Um, it's when people group together in large groups to um, dominate others that you can get um, problems. Um, it's when it becomes part of the culture so that it's been passed down from one generation to the next that this is how you behave, that you get a problem. And it's when you... um create the environment such that it um, encourages the behaviours that lead to the issues that you get a problem. Now, some of the the knee-jerk reactions that people did initially um, to try and get rid of uh, toxic behaviour themselves uh i mean they they get rid of the symptoms but they don't get rid of the cause in fact they can help leading to the cause they can help uh, cause things like so in mud for example it's got permadeath now people wouldn't play a game today with permadeath they might play a single player game with permadeath and it's a rogue roguelike game Then, you know permadeath's part of the thing uh, they might play some iron man mode or iron person mode whatever they're they want to call it these days um version of um, a single-player game where um, there's no um, uh, saving and resaving. But um, in an MMO, you expect that um, if you get killed, then you come back with a wrist slap. Ow, oh dear, I've got to run back to my corpse. Oh no, I've got to pay some money to have my um, items repaired. Uh, there's it, it's, um, it's anodyne. Now, the thing was in mud, though, that if anybody was a jerk, you um, you could take them on. And if people were um, killers and they went around killing everybody else, eventually they would get killed. And that was end of story, because now they were back to nothing. And people learned that killing was not a winning strategy. Now, that doesn't scale up to a world with 10,000 players in it at the same time because you can get gangs of killers roaming around at the same at the same moment but on the other hand do we want worlds with 10,000 players in at once why do we want a, a virtual world that's got that number of players it seems to be that people just expect it but why um there were 2,000 Dikku muds around in 1991 and there were um muds were 11% of the bits on the internet were, were, were belong to muds. Um, but the why, why is it that we've got why would you have a million players split into 10,000 um, ser, uh, player servers when you could split them into 1,000 player servers and just have 10 times as many? If you yeah, got a well, smaller- it's, a good,
0: it's a good question, right? Because yeah. I mean, it, it ties this ties in. You know, if you look at the way that the big tech and the society feels like it's moving, you know, the the multiverse, you know, gets thrown around as this this sort of you know the metaverse. Sorry, the metaverse gets thrown around as this concept at, that people are now going to go live in this you know Ready Player One like everyone's in the same virtual world uh, you know model. Uh, if that's so, people seem to be moving in that direction, or at least that's the that's what our tech overlords want us to believe. So there's a yeah. there's a there's a trend where not only is this going to be meaningful from a sense of you know virtual worlds and enjoyable experiences and you know self realization, but also just the very real: is this how we we're going to live?
1: Um, well, I'm not a fan of the metaverse as a concept. I mean, I'm a fan of it in the sense that it'll de- deliver a lot of things which are going to be useful for virtual worlds but um it 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 doesn't it's it's a solution looking for a problem at the moment um the the people who are all in favor of it are are currently in favor of it because they want it to be their metaverse um the idea of moving things between virtual worlds has been thought of before i mean it used to be a patent on it i think it's expired now but we had um, intermod protocols, and if, if you can move from one virtual world to another virtual world and take all your stuff with you, well, you've basically just got one virtual world, and that's not going to happen. Because are you saying uh,
0: it's not going to happen because the enter the people who create them don't want it to happen, or it's not going to happen? Yes,
1: it's not going yes, yeah. yes. right. to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you can see how it would work as um, some kind of business thing, where you, you know a, a, a very large Second Life um but no one's they're not going to let you go into eve online taking characters from world of warcraft that have been translated into spaceship language they're not just not going to uh-huh. do that because it would spoil it would spoil the game um likewise world of warcraft is not going to um import characters from my mud even you know, people might been playing my game for 25 years and think oh i fancy a change i'll just Take everything I've got from here and go into um, World of Warcraft. Um, well, they wouldn't actually have any equipment, but they'd be a super godlike, powerful being. Um, World of Warcraft. Why would they want? Yeah. Why would they ever allow that? They wouldn't, because it would spoil the game. I can make my own game with my own equipment and and then port it into them. Well, no, there'd have to be some so, kind so- of.
0: Yeah, so sorry. for the for the most part, no, no, no. This is great, and this is one of the things I actually was excited to get into. because for the most part, I agree with you. And most designers I speak to are the same thing. As as a, as a game designer, it's a game publisher, why in why in God's name would I ever let you take the stuff in this game and take it somewhere that's not here? Right? It doesn't make sense. It's not something I'm incentivized to do, or let alone take in things from other people that are not going to be balanced or story appropriate or whatever and fit within my world. But. There's scenarios now that I can imagine this happening. So let, let, if I'll walk you through something, mm-hmm. if you can maybe react. Yeah. So now there are games that are being built on the blockchain, and that's where a lot of this talk is happening. Right, where my objects and my resources and the story and who I am and all of that is is public. It's it's open; people can see it. Now, yeah. I as a new designer that want to bring in players to my game and bootstrap a, a social community, right? The very, uh, I could say, hey, everybody, I'm building a new thing. Everybody over there, you could just come right on over, and all your stuff's going to work, and all your stuff's going to have a place here. Now, that's a tough design challenge to do it well, but I can imagine now an incentive for an incumbent to play, you know, to be, to try to take down an incumbent in this space uh, because the, the data is public, and I as the newcomer want to bring you in.
1: Well, um, First of all, you're talking to the privileged, to the people who have the stuff. Um, and secondly, why would you even need? If you if you want, you've got all this stuff in that virtual world. You can come to this virtual world, and I'll and you can take it with you. Well, why? I could give you anything you want. You didn't have to be on a blockchain. If you've got something on a blockchain, yeah, sure, I can translate it. You can take it into my world but i can give that to anybody everybody mm. People who didn't buy it they can come into the world look come no. to my world and i'll give you this abundant cornucopia of things No, but it's scarcity matters afraid.
0: you know you know that scarcity matters and 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 status matters if everybody gets it then it's not then i don't care right the players don't care they care about no, no, being the able players
1: to. the yeah. players care if they don't have it and if i go sure. into a game world if if i'm a nobody in this game world, and I start another game world, and I'm a nobody there because everybody with with the, all the money comes in with me. Why am I playing that other world? Most people are nobodies.
0: Yeah. Well, the nobodies <laughs> the nobodies are going to go. There'll, there'll be two things, right? There's one is to say there's somebody, there's something here that's just intrinsically appealing to me, which is the the classic way I sell a game, right? Like, <laughs> hey, look how cool this is for X, Y, or Z reason. The art, the story, the play, the tech, something, and or they're going to go there because hey. Everybody else is already here, right? When I first learned about World of Warcraft, it was because everybody was playing World of Warcraft at the time. So, of course, I'm going to play World of Warcraft. Or even something as simple as the wordle is the, I don't know how much you've been exposed to wordle these days, right? Like, <laughs> Everyone yeah. every on my social media feed is posting these stupid blog yes. pictures. So, yeah. okay, I'm going to go play wordle. But, but well, those, so the, not, it's the, got
1: American the, spelling failure yeah, with yeah. no you
0: <laughs> 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 but my my point is that that it, it the social matters, right? The, the the social proof matters, the community matters, and so anything that you can do to bootstrap your community, even if that is giving the haves become have bars, which I agree with you is a problem. Uh, but it's it's a it's a reason and a and a plausible story where you know newcomer A will want to come and Bring you know the, the the players over from incumbent B, and then that that would repeat itself over time because that that exclusivity and the bringing the the whales over and the the, the haves over will create a large enough community that the have-nots will want to be a part of it.
1: No, I disagree, and the reason I disagree Great. is is because you uh, if you're attracting people who are um, uh, disloyal. In other words, they're playing a game and you're attracting them by saying you can leave that game world and come to my game world um, because you can take your stuff with you. You're essentially saying um, you're disloyal to your game world. And if someone is disloyal to that game world, they're going to be disloyal to yours. Someone's going to come along and poach them from you. Um, That's not a basis for creating a world. You can take your stuff with you. Um, Isn't a basis for creating a world. It's, It's a uh, it's a basis for um, extending an existing world. Now, yeah, the, well, yeah. that is, I'm not saying that there aren't applications for that, but for a virtual world, a game world, then if you bring in things from other worlds, then you're not creating a world. You're just creating an addition to someone else's world. It's not standalone in that sense. Um, it, it, imagine that... Um, you're super powerful in World of Warcraft, and you want to go and play another game uh, and be super powerful in that other game. Okay, well, that's fair enough. But if you try to make the revert, the argument that um, well, World of Warcraft's um, just a uh, pocket reality, and um, Final Fantasy 14's a pocket reality, and reality itself is just a just a reality, why can't I take my stuff from World of Warcraft? into the real world why can't i convert my powerful things in world of warcraft into real powerful things look i've got a block token here that says i've got a super um, charged wand why can't i convert that into a super powerful gun in the real world and the answer is because it's not the same world the physics are different it's not the same world now if you want to move all your crap from World of Warcraft into Final Fantasy Fourteen, Guild Wars Two, Secret World, whatever. It's it's not the same so, world.
0: Well, yes, but so the question is: Can you build things that are? Uh, you know, is there a, is there a semi permeable mem- membrane here, right? Where okay, this world has certain rules and advantages, but some things transfer over, right? Just like I could sell. My powerful magic wand, or sell gold in World of Warcraft for real-world money, which I could use to buy a pretty nice gun or car or whatever in the real world. Right? There are ways to transmit things from one zone, one reality, to another that are not necessarily whole hog transitions. Or I could be, an, I could control maybe the specifics of what my avatar looks like in a world that is otherwise, you know, more constrained in ways, uh, you know, uh, Fortnite, but I think still the most popular game right now, or, or, certainly was recently, um, is a world that has, you know, certain rules and aesthetics, but the, you know, you can buy an Ariana Grande skin if you want and be that, or you can be, you know, a giant tarantula and that's all fine because they give you that space of the, this world allows for those sorts of things. So, it doesn't necessarily have to mean my world has no definition if I allow other genres or other fungible elements of of, of other worlds to come into
1: mind. Um, yes, uh, that's true. But if there was only one Ariana Grande com- um, uh, item, uh, skin, then um, would you be able to take that one with you? Th- it's- the the game developers can give you whatever they want they are the gods of their worlds and they can right if it's so great that every that anybody can take something from one world into another and the only argument you've got against um not allowing them to do that is that scarcity matters well scarcity only matters it when when it's it's impossible to cr- to to, re- to create something. You're uh, if you're introducing artificial scarcity. Well, I could make scarcity matter by um, saying only twenty people are allowed to play my game. Um, I'd soon find out how much lack of scarcity mattered then. The, uh, yes, I mean, every every game world you want. Yeah. in a capitalist yeah. um, sense. If you are somebody who um, completely defines themselves by their possessions, well, yes. For you, mere um, possession of something you want to take it with you, yeah, great. Um I've in in real life, I've got a what a, a collection of playing cards that are probably worth exactly what I paid for them. Uh, uh, could I sell one of those and then um, use the money to buy one in a in a virtual world? Well, yes, I could, but then I've got I haven't got the original one anymore. I just got the copy. Right. If I want the original one back, I have to sell the copy and then use the money to buy the original one if the original one person will sell it to me now. I can't just move from one thing to another thing, take my everything with me. Um, so you you want scarcity on one hand, but then you don't want it on the other. Either something's yeah. scarce or, or it's not. And um, in a world where I can give you anything that you want, I mean, the gold farming... Uh, Is an example. People buying advantages in a game world. I mean, it's like buying a save file from a civilization game two turns from the end, playing them and claiming you've won civilization. It's not not what you do. I mean, that's but that's what gold farmers are doing. That they're getting gold and they're selling them to players, and then the players use them to buy things, to buy status advancement items in a game world but if it was so good if if it didn't matter that people were um getting these objects through ways other than play well the game designers could just create a web page and said click on anything you want and we'll give it to you
0: no you're you're right i mean like it's not you know the the when i talk about scarcity in this context um i you know i mean not just you know, the only people who are wealthy can buy it. But like anything that's worth, you know, I could give you all the time, top level characters, and all the goodies and everything you want in a game, and you're going to get bored of that very quickly because what you oh, want wow. is it to be hard to achieve. You want to yeah. feel like you've uh, you've earned take
1: it. Take that stuff with me to another game.
0: Well, you know, this to be able to show that, you know, you're able to show the status that hey, I earned this in this other game and I'm bringing it over here. No, you didn't now, earn maybe, it in the other
1: game. You paid money for it in an in a game three games ago. You paid me, real money me, for it. And now you're claiming you own it and now you take it with you and look, I've got the status. You have you, you haven't got the status. You could sell that to anybody for any amount of money and they don't have they haven't done it. It's not like a medal that they wear that you only get because you've been wounded in a battle. Anybody can mean, wear your medal. It's not like, well, um, yeah. oh, I don't need my PhD anymore, I'm retiring, I'll sell my PhD to someone who's so busy they don't have time to study for three years. I can't do that. <laughs> these are these are things which are attached to individuals. And if you're s- claiming that s- scarcity um, m- is some kind of proof of a, a qualification, well, it's not a, a qualification because yeah, no. people can buy it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, scarcity alone is not uh, is not going to provide the real value here, but I do think it is part of the recipe. Something that being difficult to get uh, and that not everyone has makes it more valuable and worth achieving. Now, whether there's a deeper question of the, the capitalist piece of this, which is like, can I just buy it, or can I earn it, or is it both, and how do I s- determine one from the other, or lock out the two within a game? Uh, which, unfortunately, we probably don't have enough time to get into here. But I, mm. I, 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 yeah.
1: Ah. Well, yeah, as I say, there are applications where this would be working perfectly fine, but these aren't applications within a game context where there are additional rules that surround the game world that are um, what make that world what it is. Um, Now, you could design worlds where that did happen, but they would essentially, they'd have to, um, there would have to be standards, things that you would accept. Um, you'd have to. Um, uh, I will accept um, items that follow standard fifty three because I know that standard fifty three is is signed up to by the only by these other games companies that I trust. Right. Yeah, I think about it in the
0: way that, like, we you know, games that have user created content, right? Whether that be Second Life or you know, games with mods that can be put in. Like, you know, each game mm-hmm. creates its world, its rules within which you can now play in the sandbox and create a whole variety of things that the designers never intended or never imagined anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there could be a similar structure for a future game universe, whether you want to call it a metaverse or not, It's uh, definitely a loaded term, where something like what you're saying, there's there are sort of rules, there's a sandbox that you can play in, but it allows this interoperability uh, in a sense, and and again, I, I appreciate you going and, and, and playing this this game with me because for the most part, I agree with you. And every designer I talk to, kind of, is on the same boat. But the universe is the, the, the broader world is pushing in a different direction, and so well, I, yes. I, and I the I, broader I like pushing world has
1: back. a lesson to learn. If the broader world if they <laughs> talk more game designs, then the, then the broader world would be would be aware that this was um, not a good idea. Um, but it's a good idea if you want to make money quick. But mm. um, it, uh, even using a blockchain, I mean, every time you add something to a blockchain, it's just a little bit more work than it was to add something to the blockchain the previous time. And, and so you end up with a with a, with a potlatch. Um, the, every time you do something, it's got to be more than the previous time, and that grows and grows and grows. Uh, and, and once we get um, the... Uh, quantum apocalypse and um, the entire blockchain keys can be decoded in an instant by um, resolute hackers, then that's the end of your blockchain.
0: Well, I think we have bigger problems than just the <laughs> blockchain game worlds in that scenario. <laughs> yes, it makes
1: sense. yes, yes, yes. It makes sense. <laughs> the, nuclear, the nuclear
0: codes are also fair game at that point. But, you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: well, all right. Well, I, I, I love... Um, this kind of discussion, you know, I kind of felt like I had to had to provide the precursors and, and the build up for our audience that, that didn't know you at the beginning, but really being able to sort of deep dive into a lot of these questions and, and pushing back and forth this is just so, one of the things I love and 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 I want to just acknowledge and thank you for for playing around with me in this in this part of the of the of the podcast and and for everything that you've contributed to to the genre, to the world and and to the things that that I I do every day and that I love deeply. Um, so uh, so thank you for that. And and for other people that want to find you and learn more and read more and consume more of your stuff, I, I've already mentioned, of course, your most recent book. Uh, where can they find you? What can they? Uh, where should they go to to learn more and uh, see more of your stuff?
1: Um, okay, well, uh, my, um, my antique webpage page uh, website is um, mud.co.uk/richard um my how to be a god book is at how to be a god.com um if they want to email me it's just richard at mud.co.uk or unless they're academics then they can uh, or um want to risk the university's anti-spam systems in which case they would be ra at essex.ac.uk um I'm mean, quite easy to find you just have to google me uh, and you'll you'll find me mind you there are some other Richard Bartles around so and there's a there's an artist and there's a, um, a, a man who breeds cattle and there's one who writes books about World War Three, and then there's a petty thief in Newcastle. Um, mm. so you know, you're, you're, you're,
0: you're doing a fine job. You're doing a fine job of dominating the Google rankings for your name. So uh, it's always <laughs> okay. interesting when you start to see someone else, uh, criminal record start to come up around your name. I've, I've had that experience as well. You're like, wait a minute, I didn't do that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <that's great>. <laughs> Well, anyway, I I, I, I do hope uh, that we get a chance to do, do this again, uh, maybe with just a, a full time set aside for, for debating some of the finer points of, uh, of where world, the worlds and games are headed, uh, because this has been fantastic. So thanks so much, Richard.
1: Okay, um, you're welcome. And thanks for listening to my rants.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer.